Welcome to Audrey Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Encore Farm at Bill Gant College of Pharmacy. It is a cold, it's an unseasonably cold April 22nd, 2021. Got a lot of updates to talk about today, starting with a uh, topic probably first on uh, most of our minds, which would be uh, COVID vaccination in uh, our oncology patient population. So we have uh, two new things uh, that just came out this past week. The first I'll talk about is a uh, really a letter to the editor uh, in Lancet uh, Hematology, looking at response to the first vaccine against the CARS against uh, the COVID vaccine in patients uh, with multiple myeloma. This comes from Royals Marsden in uh, in England. Nice nice center, at least based on what they published. No personal experience. So they're looking at. Uh, I think it's 93 patients with myeloma who received either the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not available here in the United States. And they retrospectively looked at these myeloma patients um, basically uh, at least three weeks following the first dose of their vaccine. Now, this is a little, a little wonky here because the AstraZeneca is a single-dose vaccine, whereas Pfizer is a two-dose vaccine. So you're looking at kind of, you know, antibody response um, after patients have been, quote, fully vaccinated with one vaccine and not with the Pfizer vaccine. But still the first evidence we have in myeloma that I have seen. Um, they're essentially uh, going back uh, to these 93 patients and looking at they have an antibody response, which they uh, used a qualitative test that either uh, fires off that you are positive or not, uh, whatever that minimum threshold is. For patients that then tested negative, um, initial test was for IgG. If patients tested negative, at least in the 41 patients who tested negative, uh, of 40 of those 41, they then tested for any antibody, including IgA or IgM, and those numbers went up a little bit. So kind of the take-home points from this is they found a 56% antibody response um, for IgG. When they then looked at those who initially tested negative and looked for other antibodies, so IgM, IgA, uh, the total number of antibody response or total uh, response rate goes to 70% for for any antibody response. Now, there's no control group like we saw uh, last week uh, in um, the article I talked about, um, or no, the beginning of this month, the article I talked about um, where they compared uh, toxicity rates uh, with COVID vaccine in patients receiving immunotherapy. No control group here. There is a control group in the study I'll talk about next. So no control group, two different vaccines, but it is some useful information. I think there's some, some stuff here that I think fits probably what our prior guesses would be. So the antibody response is lower than we would expect for everybody. We'd expect about 100% everybody. This gets to 70% using an antibody response definition. I'm not sure if that's accurate. The one thing that, that kind of does make sense is the patients with myeloma who had, say, a complete response or a very good partial response, 63% of those uh, had an antibody positive result compared to 38% um, of those who didn't. Uh, if you had, say, stable or progressive disease, only 30% had a positive result compared to 70% if you had stable disease, progressive disease. So the better the myeloma was controlled, the more likely to have an antibody response. Um, you know, they, they talk about 75% of patients who had an auto-transplant in the last month had an antibody response, but that's only eight patients, so six of the eight had an antibody response. It's a very small study, not much to really take from this, uh, except, uh, you know, it, it's not horrible. I mean, there were antibody responses. Uh, now, how good of an antibody response is unknown and how long-lasting. And again, uh, they're looking at two different vaccines. There did not appear to be a difference in antibody response between vaccines, but again, small small study 
tough to take much from that, but it's reassuring uh, if patients do have uh, some vaccine hesitancy because they have myeloma and uh, they don't think the, the vaccine will be effective. This is some empirical evidence that it, it is going to be somewhat effective. Fully effective, again, we don't know. Which brings me to my next uh, topic to talk about, which was published in Blood. Uh, it's a preprint, so it's still like in the um, uh, in the galley proofs phase, is what it looks like. This comes from uh, from Israel, same same country we got that that study I talked about earlier this week. And this is looking at the efficacy of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, um, COVID vaccine in patients with CLL. Uh, so some interesting interesting stuff here. Some again, kind of fits what we would expect in this case. Uh, they looked for antibody response two to three weeks after the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And in Israel, they give the Pfizer vaccine by the label every three weeks. Um, and they used a specific assay uh, from, from Roche, and they're looking at um, actually a quantitative value. So they're actually getting a number, a, uh, you know, a, they can quantify how much antibody is present. And they're using a threshold of 0.8 units uh, per microliter Above that is considered a response, below that is not. I'm not sure where they got that number from. Uh, it's not cited in the paper. They don't cite like the Pfizer vaccine from New England Journal of Medicine. I went back to that. Did not. I don't know where this number comes from. I don't live and breathe in this literature. So maybe this is reasonable or not. Um, but this is what they did. These are CLL patients on a variety of treatments. Um, a third were treatment naive. About half were on treatment. Uh, Two-thirds, as you would expect, were on Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, uh, 30% were on venetoclax with or without a CD20 monoclonal antibody. And uh, about 25% 25 had received a CD20 antibody uh, in the last 12 months prior to vaccination. Um, and so, you know, the, the overall antibody response here, uh, you know, is reasonable. It, it's, it's not great. Um, it was this 167 patients. Total antibody response is 40%. Uh, now that is a little bit different based on, for example, age. Looks at a little bit better antibody responses if you're younger. Uh, if you're on a BTK inhibitor, antibody response was was less likely to happen if you're on an um, abrutinib, uh, an acalabrutinib. If you received a CD20 monoclonal antibody in the last 12 months, none of them had an antibody response. Uh, achieving that threshold. So so fairly low rates of antibiotic response in the CLL patients, especially those on treatment with either BTK inhibitors and then none if they received a rituximab uh, or, or benetuzumab uh, in the last 12 months, which is which is a little a little discouraging, I would say. Um, now, they use a, a threshold. So above 80, they say that's positive. Below 80, that's positive. And you've got, you know, maybe I think it's about 50% antibody response, something like that, 40-50% an antibody response. Now, there are another eight or nine patients who actually had uh, detectable antibodies. So if you use the methods from that myeloma study, they would have maybe called this positive. So any antibody production was, was a little bit higher than the threshold they used. So depending on the methods you use, you can sometimes get different uh, percentages of antibody response. But uh, the general trends here, and I guess the, the take-home points would be, uh, you know, not great antibody responses for these folks with CLL on treatment, especially if they're on a BTK inhibitor, which is going to be our first line for most folks, or if they received a CD20 monoclonal antibody in the last 12 months, which again would be would be most folks. If you had CLL, 
Uh, and let's say you were somebody who had been treated with an FCR-based regimen uh, five or six years ago and are in remission, you had a really good chance of having an antibody response. Again, no, no real toxicity concerns here. Uh, the way I would utilize this in practice is, uh, you know, I'm doing a, an oral chemo education for somebody on a brutinib, and they're asking me questions about should I get um, the, the code vaccine. I'd say, um, yeah, let's go ahead and get it as soon as you can if you haven't started. But if you're on treatment, go ahead and get it. But then you still need to, to advocate and get your family and friends vaccinated because that's going to be the primary source where you would get COVID. Uh, the vaccine is probably going to be less effective and you we would expect that. So you should still take all the proper precautions to protect yourself while you're on treatment. Uh, so I think these are the types of papers I would expect to see for the next couple months. Uh, it's really easy to measure antibody response because uh, you can do that in a very short time frame following vaccination. Now, antibody response is not the most important thing. The most important thing is are we preventing hospitalizations severe cases of COVID and of course death from COVID and to see if there is, uh, you know, to have an appropriately powered study for that, you have to follow a lot of people to do that, which is gonna take, gonna take some time uh, to see, um, you know, presumably how much less effective these vaccines are in our patient population than the healthy patient population. I would expect the next things we'll see are similar studies of antibody response in solid tumor patients, uh, you know, uh, AML, ALL patients, things like that. Uh, maybe we'll see, I would expect to see maybe similar results in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients treated with an R-CHOP with a CD20 uh, regimen. Same sort of things you might see in that, in that patient population uh, like we saw in CLL where if they're on a CD20 monoclonal antibody in the last year, no antibody response or no, no robust antibody response. So more to see on that. Uh, and again, this is a, uh, in my opinion, a useful way to 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 educate the public, your family, friends, uh, your uncle on Facebook, and your friends from high school on Facebook about the need for those folks who are young and healthy to get vaccinated, uh, not only to protect themselves, but more so to protect those folks um, who are not, who we don't expect to have a, a, a robust response, uh, immune response to these vaccines because of their, their comorbidity cancer uh, and treatment for that. All right, the, the roller coaster of immunotherapy continues. Uh, last week we talked about the accelerated approvals that were withdrawn voluntarily, and ODAC is meeting this month, uh, next week, to talk about several other indications. There's a nice actual editorial from the folks at FDA in this week's New England Journal of Medicine that kind of summarizes that, uh, that is worth checking out. But nivolumab this week picked up an approval in combination with chemo for, um, for metastatic gastric cancer. Uh, and GEJ junction, as well as esophageal adenocarcinoma. It sounds very similar to the Pembro's approval last month. That was Pembro plus platinum plus a fluoroprimidine. That was actually cisplatin 5-FU in the study for metastatic advanced esophageal cancer or GEJ. So more of a squamous cell patient population, most likely. This is more of an adeno patient population. This is Keno 649 uh, looking at um, nivolumab plus Fulfox or plus Kpox for metastatic gastric or GEJ cancer uh, or um, lower esophageal cancer, so adenocarcinoma. Uh, almost 800 patients in each arm, which is pretty large here, uh, which is why you're gonna see these, these overall survival data be significant despite relatively modest uh, improvements. One thing that's a little bit odd here, the approval is regardless of PDL1 expression, although the first uh, endpoint was um, overall survival and the PDL1 um, composite proportion score greater than or equal to five. That's a median OS of 14.4 versus 11.1. So a nice 
three-month improvement in, in median OS. Hazard ratio is 0.71. Statistically significant. Looks good. Uh, then there's an additional efficacy outcome that's looking at uh, median OS regardless of CPS, and that's a median OS of 13.8 versus 11.6, so a little bit narrower, as you might expect. Hazard ratio 0.8, also statistically significant, which is where they're able to get the approval for anybody. Now, they do an exploratory analysis for CPS less than 5 and CPS less than 1, and those numbers are almost identical. For CPS less than 5, it's 12.4 versus 12.3, not significant. For less than 1, it's 13.1 versus 12.5, not significant. Now, those are exploratory endpoints, which means it's not powered to detect that. So based on the sampling here, you know, you get an approval for all cumbers, but I would, you know, we haven't seen the publication yet, but I would wager the vast majority of the benefit here comes in these folks with a high composite proportion score. But the approval is is for everybody. Uh, a little trick uh, that we've seen here, but but it did show an overall survival benefit. Again, that's nivolumab with either Folfox or Kfox, metastatic gastric, GEJ, or adeno of the esophagus. Uh, two more quick things to talk about. One is new, one's an update. Uh, the next is Manhattan, which is two parts bird, one part sweet vermouth, and a dash of bitters. It's also an island um, uh, in the state of New York and a borough in the city of New York City. It is the name of a small study of 41 patients looking at weekly carfilzomib, linolidomide, dexamethasone, and daratumumab for newly diagnosed multiple And these would have been uh, these were transplant candidates. Um, this is the next big thing. This is the next shiny object in treating myeloma for drug regimen with uh, the, you know, a new generation proteasome inhibitor up front. The primary endpoint here is MRD neg negativity after four cycles. Uh, and they actually achieved an MRD negativity uh, at 10 to the negative fifth of 71%, which is quite high. Uh, I believe the Griffin study, which was Bortezomib, Lin, Dex, Dara, frontline setting for four cycles, then transplant had an MRD negative rate of like 40% after transplant. So this is a very high MRD negative rate. Um, this is kind of like if you compared uh, the results of Manhattan to Griffin, don't do that for one. Uh, but for example, the Manhattan study, the median age I think is 59. Is that right? 59, these are young myeloma patients, right? And we're looking at, um, we're looking at MRD negativity. This is a little bit like looking at who's winning the basketball game uh, at the uh, you know at the first <laughs> at the first time out, um, so uh, you might see some folks try to do this in younger patients um, because of this really robust response rate. But want we'll to see this uh, you know equates to to prolonged overall survival in the upfront patient population. All right, but that's Manhattan that was published in JAMA Oncology this week, um, and then it's always nice to go back as we. Uh, as I often do, and we often do in oncology, is critique these studies, which we should. We should be very critical of these expensive drugs. So uh, what is this? I think it's Keynote 24, which is Pembro versus Chemo uh, in folks with PDL one above 50%. We had the five-year uh, OS benefit published uh, in JCO this week. And I'm actually going to look at the, the, the four to eight month, the four-year endpoint here. There's a lot of censoring as you get close to that five-year endpoint, and a lot of folks followed. So the four-year endpoint, I think, is probably a little bit more reliable to look at, but you're looking at a four-year OS of 35.8%, let's call it 36% with Pembro, first line, uh, to 20% with chemo. That's an absolute difference of 16%, which means you have to treat six people with Pembro compared to chemo 
to have one additional person alive four years later. That's a very, very high magnitude of benefit. Number to your tree is six, 6.25 to be exact. So I guess you would say seven folks. That's very robust. So when we talk about the immunotherapy drugs that you know are having voluntary approval because they're not showing benefit in randomized studies, just keep in mind that you know immunotherapy is not going to work for every for every disease, but when it does work, it you know like in non-small cell lung cancer with high PD-1 expression, it is very impactful, and those impacts uh, have been robust and they have been long-lasting. Uh, to the benefit of our patients. First thing that's really, really moved that needle. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, over and over again with these late follow-ups here. Um, so that's what I have to talk about this week. Uh, as, as I'm recording, the FDA has approved another drug, accelerated approval, uh, Dostarlamab, for uh, mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer. So that's, probably talk about that next week. What? Oh boy, the brand name of this drug, Gemperly. I'm not going to get into this. I have to read about this drug. We'll probably talk about uh, Dostarlamab uh, next week. Uh, thank you for for listening to Onco Farm. You can follow me on both uh, on Twitter at Farm Deepnip. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at Onco Farm Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember doses matter.